The following podcast covers the topic of gendered violence and mental health. The three presenters are all inspectors of minds in the mental health and wellbeing team of WorkSafe Mind Safety. Host Lee Millington is joined by Bryce Ridgway and Kath Jones as they discuss the responsibilities of PCBUs in preventing and managing incidents of sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. WorkSafe inspectors have used laws to regulate psychosocial hazards like bullying, violence and aggression for many years, but applying work health safety laws to incidents of gendered violence like sexual harassment and sexual assault is relatively new for health and safety regulators across Australia. WorkSafe WA has recently produced guidance to help workplaces manage the risks of gendered violence as they would for any other workplace hazard. My co-hosts today, Bryce and Kath, helped to write this guidance. So I'll start by asking you, Bryce, what is gendered violence? So gendered violence is any behaviour in a workplace that is directed towards someone or could affect someone because of their gender or sex or sexual orientation um, or because they don't adhere to socially prescribed gender norms. Um, the, the key thing there is that that behaviour can create a risk to health and safety ultimately. So that's what we're trying to capture with gendered violence. Now, really broadly, that includes sexual harassment, um, where sexual harassment behaviours, again, workplace behaviours, um, but in this instance, they're impacting on people because they're inappropriate or unwanted behaviours that could reasonably offend or intimidate or humiliate the uh, the person who's being harassed. Um, now, that's quite a broad range of behaviours. So that could be anything from uh, unwanted touching or hugging or kissing, um, leering or unwanted staring. It could be uh, sharing or displaying materials that are sexually explicit or inappropriate or suggestive. Um, and materials there could be pictures or videos. Uh, it could include objects and written content as well. Um, it, so it can include behaviours that are occurring online as well as behaviours that are occurring in person. Um, other behaviours might include things like uh, cornering or uh, unwanted familiarity, for example. Um, and really importantly, when you look at that broad spectrum of uh, sexual harassment behaviours, it can also include some behaviours that would be considered criminal, which is the realm of sexual assault. So in terms of sexual assault, we're generally talking about uh, unwanted sexual behaviours that a person uh, either hasn't been able to or hasn't provided consent for, and those behaviours might be threatening or forceful or coercive or threatening um, or exploitative in nature. Key thing though, consent either hasn't or can't been being given towards those behaviours. And uh, importantly as well with consent, for the, the, the victim of a sexual assault, they have to be able to give consent in the first instance, um, but also they have to be able to freely withdraw consent at any time as well. Consent really being that they're, they're freely and voluntarily choosing to engage in those sexual activities. So there's quite a broad range of behaviours that sits underneath that banner of gendered violence and it's why it can be quite a complex topic when we're talking about it in terms of work health and safety. Kath, why is gendered violence considered a workplace hazard? Why does it need to be addressed? It's a good question because psychosocial hazards are like every other hazard really. A hazard is anything that could cause harm to health. So we have laws that now state that health is defined as both physical and psychological so that Anything that can cause harm to your psychological or your physical health, which is the case with gendered violence, is considered a hazard. 
Now, it's relatively new to regulators across Australia because there are other laws that cover um, sexual harassment under equal opportunity laws and discrimination as well. But when we consider the health effects of exposure to gendered violence and some of the behaviours that Bryce just covered, if you think even the lower level behaviours, Bryce, such as the staring and leering, uh, sharing images, they could have a serious health effect, couldn't they? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what happens with that then is over time, and it depends on who is giving these or exhibiting these behaviours and also who is receiving the behaviours, who witnesses them, the context, they could end up having quite a serious effect on people's health. Yeah, And so we know that psychological injuries take just on average about three times longer to heal than a physical injury under the workers' comp system. So there is a legal obligation but also a cost, <laughs> a benefit to, to managing this hazard as well. So the... There is empirical evidence there are, are health effects and they can be, as I said, psychological. They could be minor, such as uh, a feeling that level of anxiety or hypervigilance we might feel when we're around people we're not comfortable with. Um, and they can go right up to uh, quite severe, significant disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and some really significant uh, incidents, as well as anxiety, depression and other diagnosable disorders. Um, and also, of course, they can lead to physical effects. As with any psychosocial injury or psychological injury, there can be physical uh, impacts as well. So they need to be, gendered violence would have to be managed like every other workplace hazard because of that risk of injury. Right, I see. Um, Bryce, what are some factors that make gendered violence more likely to occur in a workplace? Yeah, so there are risk factors within workplaces that can make it more likely that gendered violence might occur or that might be supportive of sexual harassment behaviours. Um, so some of the sorts of considerations there can be cultural. So um, particularly in workplaces where leaders don't have a good understanding of the nature and drivers of sexual harassment behaviours or gendered violence, um, they're, they're less likely to address issues quickly, less likely to have processes in place that would actually prevent exposure um, to those sorts of behaviours in the first place. Um, there are other considerations there too, like the uh, the nature of the work environment itself. So if there's high levels of contact with customers or clients, mm. for example, or external parties, um, where there's lower levels of supervision in the workplace or where workplaces are um, more remote as well, they can be considerations. Where employees are living in employer-provided Accommodation can be another risk factor for sexual harassment behaviours occurring. Um, organisations that tend to rely on hierarchical structures for the running of the organisation tend to be um, indicative of sexual harassment being more likely to occur. Um, and some other considerations in there as well, like yeah, relative power, power imbalances, imbalances mm. um, and lower levels of diversity, particularly gender diversity in the organisation as well can be uh, indicative that sexual harassment might be more likely to occur. Any other risk factors in there as well? No, you I think and that's a key part. I think that power imbalance is a good one because when we talked about why things can have a severe impact, like I said, if, if you have a, a, a supervisor who is paying you unwanted uh, attention and un unwanted sexual attention, that can have much more of an impact, couldn't it, than a a co-worker, for example. Yeah. So that power imbalance can actually exacerbate the risk. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And when we talk about power imbalances, we're not just talking about that line management mm. um, power, which is really significant, but also relative balances in um, status as well. So people who might have been in an organisation for longer and have more status in an organisation can still have a relatively higher level of power than someone who might be new um, into the organisation as well. So all those things are, are relevant in terms of looking at where sexual harassment may be more likely to occur. 
What are the PCBU's legal obligations when it comes to gendered violence? Well, the legal obligations haven't really changed since our laws changed to WHS. We were still applying these laws um, under the old uh, OSH Act and Mine Safety Inspection Acts. What has changed really is the definition of PCBU. So we know that PCBU is more than just the direct employer. It can be um, a a lot of other people who have control of a business. And they have a duty of care to make sure that as far as is reasonably practicable, that the hazards that people could be exposed to, like I said, psychosocial hazards are included, they need to be controlled. And uh, that includes things like having a, a safe system of work, both physically and psychologically safe system of work, but also systems that can include things like a really good reporting system um, that's robust. Uh, it, it means having a safe workplace, safe environment. So, for example, there's there's safe egress in an emergency if, if somebody has been exposed to violence and aggression. Um and it could also mean, uh, you know, that having adequate training, that's just not not just training for the uh, workers, but training for the supervisors in how to respond to sexual assault, sexual harassment disclosures. We know that they could be highly traumatic. So we need to have managers with that uh, training as well in order to, to re- respond in an appropriate manner. Uh, and so generally there's that fundamental duty of care, which is the same as has always been in place, and that is primarily on the employer or the PCBU. But there's also a duty of care on workers, of course, not to harm other people's health uh, by an act or omission. And then we have the regulations uh, which go into further detail on the risk management approach, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I think, when we talk about the risk factors, mm-hmm. Bryce. But um, the risk management approach is primarily hazard identification and assessing and controlling the risk, isn't it? Is there anything else to that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and it's a final step as well mm. in terms of setting up systems or processes for monitoring the effectiveness of those systems of controls as well. Point, so it's part yeah. of that that broad iterative approach to how you're actually managing risk and any risk, whether mm. it's psychosocial or, or physical. So what you mean is if an employer has training, for example, and, and gives training to staff, it wouldn't be enough just to give that training, would it? Mm. They'd yeah. have to review whether that training's effective under our new look. Yeah, yeah absolutely okay. right. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about what that risk-based approach to gendered violence involves? So, yeah, could you tell us about the assessment, maybe, Bryce, about those risk factors we were talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, similar to, uh, to any risk in a workplace environment, there's a need to actually um, identify what, what hazards might be more likely to occur in that environment and get an understanding with the the nature of the work being carried out, the nature of the workplace and the the people who are involved in that workplace. So workers, um, clients, other third parties who might be coming into the workplace. um, What are the sorts of hazards that people might be exposed to there? So the first step in that risk assessment process is really clearly identifying, well, what are the hazards? In this case, psychosocial hazards, those related to gendered violence, um, and getting a good understanding of what are the circumstances where people might be exposed to those hazards, who are the people who might be more likely to expose to those hazards, um, and what are the consequences of exposure to those hazards as well, so that we can get an understanding of, firstly, what's the likelihood Mm. of exposure, but then what's the likely consequence of being exposed as well. And so if it's a hazard where people might be exposed to it frequently, um, and there's fairly high consequence to psychological health of exposure to that hazard over time, then we know that it's something that we actually need to to have controls in place around, which mm. um, sort of starts to flow into the, the risk assessment process That's itself, right. Kat, if you want to talk to that you a bit. No, and it's a good point as well, Bryce, because, I mean, you talked about that consultation. That really is a key factor, isn't it? And if you... I mean, there's ways to interact with, with staff and, and surveys might be one of them to find out how people are feeling. Would that be a good a starting point with some organisations, larger organisations? You could 
you know, survey your staff to see what their exposure limits uh, or exposure levels to sexual harassment and sexual assault might be like. Um, speaking to staff and the control strategies are really going to be based on those risk factors, aren't they? So if you've got an industry, for example, if you um, are working in hospitality and, uh, you know, a late night liquor retail will have a very different risk uh, profile to those working, say, on a mine site, to those, for example, working in uh, aged care where there may be a dementia you know, base risks as well. So it really depends on what that risk factor is. So whatever you pick up, is that right? That, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. If, if you find, for example, that, um, you know, people are drinking on site uh, and, and that could be the major risk factor, then you'd want to start with the control of the alcohol. But mm. if there are risk factors associated with, say, as we said, with liquor retail and you might have intoxicated um, customers, you could have decent security or, or some sort of level of service um uh, refusal to make sure that we we have uh, people who are um, behaving in a way which is appropriate for those uh, for those staff. So the control strat- strategies will actually um, be focused on how you can eliminate that uh, that exposure. You also need to have some of those preventative structures. So we can't always eliminate sexual harassment, sexual assault, can we? I mean, is it, it is is it possible? What do you think? It's like a lot of those psychosocial hazards that we talk about. There's a behavioural component to yeah. it. So people might be motivated to engage in sexual harassment behaviour, for example, mm. um, in spite of what an operation might have in place or an organisation might have in place. So then there are those needs to consider, well, mm. what can we do? If we can't eliminate that the behavioural component of the hazard, what can we actually be doing to as much as... or to the extent practicable, yeah. um, actually prevent our people from being exposed exactly. to that hazard. And it's it's fair to say that the employer can't and the PCBU can't reasonably be expected to control every risk factor. You can't mm. control for a person's history and whether they not they believe uh, they have a misunderstanding around what consent is, for example. Mm. So the focus would be on what can you control. And those sources of risk tend to be how work is designed. You talked a bit about the hierarchical structure. You need to maybe design it so that there's um, more uh, input and control from um, all levels of, of the workplace and the workforce. So for gendered violence broadly, sexual harassment and sexual assault, there's mm. a, a relationship there between um, alcohol being consumed in the workplace mm. um, and in activities associated with the workplace and then the prevalence of those sorts of behaviours as well. Yeah. So the, again, That's there are some right, really concrete yeah. steps that can be taken there that would um, control the consumption of mm. alcohol that could prevent the likelihood of exposure to those sexual harassment and sexual assault right. risks in the workplace. That's a good point. And if those sexual assault risks are to do with, for example, um, how people are speaking in the workplace when it comes to um, they're responding to, to certain uh, management styles, for example, you've got a manager who who is modelling behaviours which are not appropriate, it's... Mm-hmm. Obviously, your focus would be on how to moderate or, or model the correct behaviours from your leaders, so it might be leadership training. So the control strategies can be based on preventing the behaviour, but also preventing an injury should occurrence occur. So like you said, we can't always um, prevent it. So how can we mitigate that risk of a longer-term stress injury? So the control strategies would also have to look at the um, immediate uh, response, making sure it's appropriate, that it's effective, that it's uh, trauma-informed and victim-centric so that you lim- uh, minimise that risk of longer-term injury where you can't prevent it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely right. And I think it, it, it bears reinforcing mm. that. Like, ideally, we want and the, the legislation requires that people eliminate hazards where they can, but if we can't eliminate mm. a gendered violence hazard, then we need to do as much as possible to prevent the likelihood of a worker being exposed to that hazard. And 
if a worker is exposed to that hazard, then we need to have those controls in place that would prevent harm to health from occurring from exposure to that hazard as well. So it's ensuring that there are multiple layers in there mm. which are going to adequately protect people if we know that there's a risk of gendered violence occurring in the workplace. And from what we see from a lot of the research that's out there, we know that sexual harassment risks and gendered violence risks more broadly are actually um, occurring quite frequently mm. in Australian workplaces. So it is something that needs to be addressed and needs to be considered within our systems of control. I think it's one of the point to add, and that's a really good point, Bryce, because we know sexual harassment is one of the most underreported hazards mm. in the workplace. So we need to assume that even if you don't receive a report as a PCBU or, a, or an employer, you would still be seeking those out, wouldn't you? Looking for yeah. where those those risk factors might be um, and, and putting in that risk management approach despite there not being any reports even. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So as we were saying earlier, when we're looking at risk assessment, we're looking at, well, what are multiple data sources that we can actually be drawing on? So a survey might be one, for example. Um, looking at historical reports from um, employees and workers might be another example. Um, actually looking at the, the frequency of... Um, uh, these sorts of hazard exposures through um, data and research where we're looking at sort of comparable in industries as well. That could be mm. another way that we might be considering what the likelihood of that hazard exposure of occurring is. So we're looking at lots of different ways of assessing what's the, the likelihood of exposure to that risk in our workplace um, so that we can make sure that the controls that we're putting in place are commensurate with the level of risk that actually presents as well. Um, and then as Kathy had said earlier, making sure that once we've established those controls, so we've got our primary preventative controls and then we've got our secondary and tertiary controls for about mitigating harm and aiding recovery if people are exposed to these hazards, they're making sure we've got systems in place that actually monitor that those controls are doing what they're supposed to be doing as well. Um, so that if we um, have implemented controls, let's say around bystander intervention, for example, so we've got a great system of um, training around um, bystander intervention in terms of gendered violence, and we've established KPIs for our leaders and our frontline leaders that um, indicates that they're having these conversations and they're actually going out and directly addressing these sorts of hazards with people as well. What's the effect of those controls once they're actually in place? And, and are they seeking to encourage people to report where there is a hazard exposure in the first instance, for example, or they're assisting people to actually address these issues if they're coming up and hopefully ideally, they're actually preventing exposure in the first place as well. Um, as you said, uh, we can't 100% prevent these things from happening. So say a PCBU has taken a risk-based approach to gendered violence and has implemented suitable preventative and recovery controls, but an incident still occurs, what should their response look like? Well, yeah, if you had, like Bryce said, um, the, the systems in place, a, a fit for purpose reporting process, you've got that bystander training you spoke of, um, you know that the PCBUs uh, are, are keeping a top, keeping abreast of where these issues are occurring. And they're, like you said, they're analysing that data you talked about, Bryce. Uh, they should also have those mitigation recovery controls in place already. So if, if it does occur, then a worker can trust that they're safe with reporting, uh, they, they won't have any fear of repercussions if they do report, and also there'll be um, managers who are trained in responding so that they, they don't blame a worker. So basically ensure a trauma-informed response is to ensure that people don't feel blame. You give a person who's been through a trauma an opportunity to to uh, discuss these matters without um, a fear of repercussion, without fear of blame, and in a safe space where they know that their information is going to be treated with sensitivity. So if we have a response and mitigation system in place which is robust enough so that 
anyone who is disclosing these things can do so and in, in trust in the system will be confidential. They trust that the manager will support them and will, will um, deal with their information sensitively. Uh, then they can investigate these matters in a, in a, a, a a manner which is expedient expedites the process of the investigation. And the investigation isn't to find out why the person did some uh, did a person do something wrong. So the the investigation is, uh, should be looking at those sources of risk that that Bryce was just talking about. How well is our workplace designed? Has there been exposure to um, other uh, risk factors which could have increased the risk? Have are people working a lot in isolation? Do they are they having enough support? Do they do they have um, the right environment in which to to uh, feel safe at work? So an investigation process will then look at all of those risk factors, and then you let that person know afterwards. It's really important to give them feedback on their report. Because there's nothing worse, is there, than reporting something and not feeling that anything's happening. So what can workplaces do, do you think, Bryce, to about that? By addressing those concerns, Mm. just as you said, Kath, so we know that people are less likely to report sexual harassment anyway, Mm. um, but certainly if they have experiences of being exposed to inappropriate behaviours in their workplace and they feel like, well, things haven't been done or perhaps things have been done, but they've been done behind closed doors and then that individual's not been provided with feedback around what occurred, um, or even worse, if they report it, um, there is some sort of investigation, but then those behaviours continue, the likelihood of them actually reporting in the future and the likelihood of other people reporting obviously decreases as well. Mm-hmm. So I think addressing those things quite directly is really important. Yeah. Um, ensuring that helpful messaging around that reporting process is being communicated, that people mm. really understand what their options for reporting are, um, and that they do have access to multiple options for how they can report these sorts of issues. So as Kath said earlier, if the, the person who is exhibiting inappropriate behaviours towards you is your supervisor, the likelihood of you going to your supervisor to report that they're Mm. behaving inappropriately is going to be pretty slim. Absolutely. So ensuring that there are multiple avenues, which might be through a human resources function directly, or it might be through an anonymous um, or confidential um, third-party reporting line as well, or it might be through a manager one level up or an unrelated manager as well. Yeah. Um, But ensuring that there's good communication around that and ensuring that those reporting processes are managed well so that if people report, Mm. their experience is going to be a positive one um, or at least as positive as it can be in those circumstances Mm. and they feel that they get some resolution out of it as well. Absolutely, yeah. And given how, uh, you know, rare it is for people to report sexual harassment, we know, as I said, it was underreported quite significantly in workplaces. You know, the PCBU should be responding in a very positive manner and and actually thanking the person for coming forward and making sure that process is is as um, robust as possible. So, yeah, just to summarise, Lee, there's two things you need to do. You need to obviously um, respond with sympathy, empathy and... and, um, you know, sensitivity to the issues and mitigate the risk, but also you need to investigate what happens as a result of those things, as Bryce said. Look at all of those potential factors which could have interacted and how you could potentially address that. Yeah, mm. And probably, you know, the, something I would add to that mm. as well, Kath, is that we've highlighted there that the focus on the investigation needs to be on, well, what are the contributing factors? So what what are the risk factors here? How are they being managed or not managed? And when you look at traditional work health and safety investigative approaches, that's exactly what they do. Absolutely. So yeah. they, they look at the circumstances, the events, the work environment, and they say, well, what about this scenario contributed to this particular outcome? Um, where traditionally when we've looked at psychosocial hazards and mm. gendered violence, particularly what we're focused on is, well, did person B do what person A said? which, like yeah. Kath said, is, is not particularly focused around the, the victim in those circumstances or the affected person mm. and not particularly helpful. So the, the, 
the changeover in legislation here gives us a really good opportunity to look at well, what have we traditionally done well in terms of work health safety investigations and management more broadly, yeah. and let's apply that to how we manage psychosocial hazards, how we actually look at gendered violence in the mm. workplace particularly, so we can get much better outcomes, we can drive improvement in that area. So, for, yeah, for a great example, if somebody hurt their back lifting up a box in a workplace, mm. you wouldn't investigate, did you spend a lot of time on your, did you do it or not, and then sack them if they did or discipline them. You'd look at ways that you could reduce the load. You'd look at ways that why did they lift that box. You know, you should be doing exactly the same. So just like the theme of this Safe Work Month is we should be considering all these psychosocial hazards as if they were physical hazards and doing exactly the same approach. Yeah. So moving away from those HR-style investigations and really focusing on building trust and transparency around the process? Absolutely. Yeah. And for, particularly for sexual harassment, it'd be exactly what you would for bullying, but it's slightly different for sexual assault. Bryce, can you talk, talk us a bit through? Because the, the mitigation strategies, obviously, harassment's about when somebody feels offended or a reasonable person might feel offended by something. Mm. But sexual assault's a different matter. Yeah, and because we're starting to talk about criminal behaviours here and, and, and criminal offences, obviously. Um, so a lot of what Kath said earlier in terms of um, being trauma-informed in a response is it obviously applies directly in terms of a victim um, of an alleged sexual assault. Um, and there are some additional considerations there too. So really key, if there is a report of a sexual assault in a workplace, um, taking a victim-oriented approach is really, really important um, and making sure that there's very early access to appropriate psychological and physical health supports as well. So that's the key thing. It's about taking care of the individual in the first instance mm -hmm. um, and doing everything possible to support their, their psychological health and their physical health potentially mm -hmm. as well. Um, certainly from there, making sure that there's access to West Australian Police for reporting as well. Um, and obviously engaging with the individual to understand what their wishes in that context are. So potentially it's about an employer supporting um, the individual to speak with police, or it might be about the employer making a report on their behalf as well. Um, and it, we absolutely appreciate that in some instances, victims actually aren't going to necessarily want to make a formal report as well. So that's absolutely to be respected. Um, and it doesn't actually prevent the employer from still considering what factors might have contributed to that particular hazard exposure occurring in the workplace as well. Um, so the other consideration would be um, in Western Australia, making sure that the individual has contact information or is supported to contact the Sexual Assault Resource Centre as well, who have a range of services available um, in terms of forensic services and also psychological mm. supports that are really important to offer to a victim of a sexual assault as early mm. as possible. Um, and the SART can also provide support to employers in terms of looking at their responses in these sort of circumstances as well. Um, so ideally, as part of that risk assessment approach, when you're considering what controls we need to pay, have in place or what processes we need to have in place, um, using some of that expert um, support and information as well. Um, probably some of the other really relevant considerations there, though, is with, the, with a sexual assault, because there's a level of um, criminality around the behaviour and likely... The, there will be in the involvement of the police that might impact on what a, an employer is able to do in investigation, mm. but it shouldn't actually prevent the employer from looking at their own systems and processes and work environment and considering whether there are areas there that they need to address immediately to prevent any recurrence of that sort of risk to other employees or other people in their workplace in the future as well. Um, I guess as well, the scene, I guess, being a, a, an assault, a scene of a physical assault, you'd have to, uh, the employee would have to seize that for a while, wouldn't they, for the forensic evidence. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so certainly reporting to the police and the uh, the police informing that process yeah. is really, really important. Um, and there may be some requirements there under work health safety legislation, depending on the nature of the incident as well. Um, so I suppose if you're considering it in terms of em an employer's obligations there, um, if there is a serious incident on a site and that incident, whether it's psychosocial or physical in nature, leads to an injury that prevents someone from working, then in addition to considering in the case of a sexual assault, that might be need to be reported to West Australian Police. Mm. Um, it might also need to be reported to WorkSafe as well if there is an injury outcome there. So certainly being aware of that, being mindful of it, making sure that um, a PCBU is engaging in their statutory reporting obligations. Um, and for some industries like mining, for example, um, even if there's not an injury outcome, if it's a, a serious incident that had the potential to cause harm to a person um, and certainly sexual assaults and many, many examples of gendered violence would fit that criteria, um, it would still be reportable through to WorkSafe Mind Safety for follow-up as well. Can we talk a bit more about um, when PCBUs should be notifying WorkSafe that a gendered violence incident has occurred? Well, like Bryce said, there are statutory reporting requirements, and one of them says immediately. So if there has been an injury, and we know that there, uh, a GP or a medical practitioner has has uh, diagnosed that this injury is likely to cause a person to be off work for 10 days or more, that's, that's certainly notifiable under the Act. And there are certain workplaces, like Bryce said, where as soon as you become aware of an incident, you need to report what's known as a reportable incident in mining uh, sector. But really, as soon as you find out, they should be reporting it. Um, just to be, also be aware that WorkSafe um, doesn't may not investigate all these reported incidents. It is a statutory reporting requirement because it allows us to see where these workplaces are more, or which workplaces are more likely to find a hazard. So just reporting um, an incident itself doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have an inspector walk up on your doorstep. And when WorkSafe does get involved, how do they address those notifications? You said investigations can sometimes result. Yes, sometimes. And obviously, we sexual assault is almost is, is investigated in every circumstance. absolutely minor, very minor sexual harassment cases. Uh, we might have to maybe do a, a survey later on and be more proactive, particularly because we can't case manage for individuals. We're not, um, as an agency, we only apply the WHS Act and the WHS legislation, uh, the re regulations as well. So we can't dismiss a person, we can't sack a person, we can't mediate. But what WorkSafe can do is look into what those systems of work in place are and whether they're adequate. Would that be about it, Bryce? Yeah, Is there any... absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In a lot of instances... The, uh, the organisation, the PCBU, will still be following their internal processes mm. and it may be a review of that process that follows from WorkSafe as well. Oh, good point, yeah. Um, and where can employers and workers find further information about psychosocial hazards like gendered violence and how to address them? So the, we've got quite a bit of information out there. So we have the legislation, the regulations, obviously, um, include information that's relevant to how psychosocial hazards and gendered violence hazards are managed. Um, then we also have a series of codes of practice specific to psychosocial hazards as well. So we have a workplace behaviours code of practice, a violence and aggression in the workplace code of practice. Um, and Kath? That a over, third one. An overarching psychosocial code of practice. And that really looks at those other risk factors that could have impacted the risk, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it provides a range of resources that can help to provide guidance in relation to what can be done 
um, in terms of setting up systems to address these sorts of hazards. And then we have a range of guidance available. So we have information sheets that are specific to sexual harassment, sexual assault, and also notification mm. um, in the case of mines operators of instances of gendered violence. And then we have quite a range of online resources available as well, don't we, Kat? That's right. And, and anyone, workers, uh, employers, or even just members of public, if you're interested to see how uh, it is, how risk management approach can be applied to all psychosocial hazards in general, we have what's called a Mentally Healthy Workplaces Hub. So just Google WorkSafe WA and Mentally Healthy Workplaces and you can get to all of our codes of practice will be uh, are available there. We've got other podcasts if, you're, if you don't want to listen to our voices and you can listen to some other people. We've also got um, some example risk assessments. So, yeah, there's a lot of information and that's constantly being updated. So I'd be really encouraging you to have a look or to subscribe to WorkSafe so that you can be alerted to any new information sheets that come out. Thanks, Bryce and Kath. It's been really good talking about this really important topic with you. Thanks, Thanks Lee. Lee.